welcome to Bloody Violent History and hopefully welcome back. This episode is the second half of our Royals in War feature. In part one, Jamie and I discuss the general themes that emerge when royal families get close up and personal to gain, retain and pass on the crown of state. We looked at some examples of kingly knockabout in the classical world and up to just before the Anglo-Norman period in England. In this episode, we're going to take you the rest of the way. So shut your cellar and Yateman and hear what Jamie and I have to offer on 1066 and all that. But before we jump in, please remember to pass this episode on to a friend. Do it now. Just hit the share button and post it. Right, back to the show. Then, of course, you get 1066, the Battle of Hastings. Uh, Listen to the interview that Tom did. Yeah, episode 73, the Battle of Hastings. That was a an interview with Alan Mallinson, who has written a book called The Shape of Battle. But, of course, the arrival of William the Conqueror, William I, on the throne really was just the start of this battle between uh, rival sons, essentially. I mean, it, it, it certainly didn't end there. And this this gave it a massive boost, because if you look at the, the sons of William the Conqueror, the, the problem with owning property abroad, this was another thing that ran through English history, that if you end up with properties in Normandy or Aquitaine or Anjou or any of these places, you know, Every son gets a, a, a slice of the pie, but every son wants more of that pie. So they're going to start invading. They're going to start jockeying for position. So you look at the sons of William the Conqueror, and, and William the Conqueror led well at Hastings. He certainly you know, led his men from the front. He, he, was, he was no shrinking violet when it came to the battlefield. But you look at his sons, and... Once more, it wasn't the eldest who became his natural heir. You know, his the eldest son was Duke Robert. He he became Duke Robert of Normandy, and he was constantly fighting his father, constantly trying to invade. And it's no coincidence that once Henry the First takes power, once he inherits after the uh, suspicious death of William Rufus. The, the, the next son in line who, who, who became King of England. Henry, Henry was there, Prince Henry was there uh, when William Rufus was mysteriously hit by an arrow. Right, safety catch off. Yes, yeah. and, and, and raced, raced off to get crowned. But who should be in the background during that reign of Henry I but Duke Robert of Normandy, his elder brother? And and Henry went to Normandy fight him. Duke Robert invaded England. Henry ended up capturing Duke Robert, and 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 Robert had been on crusade to the Holy Land, that that first crusade of 1099. So he he was not averse to to being in the front line, to fighting, and being extremely warlike. But he was captured, and he spent the rest of his life in a couple of castles. I think he died in. Uh, Cardiff Castle, actually. He had been captured and, and died in captivity, and it was his brother, Henry, who, who put him there. When talking about warrior kings, we always have to mention Richard the Lionheart, Richard I. 
We do. He, he, he's always been held up. He's, he's the symbol of martial prowess. He, he loved fighting. He loved war. He, he didn't particularly want to rule his kingdom. Do you think that's one of the reasons why he has a higher um, level of respect than he might otherwise, because he never really ruled at home and, and, you know, let the side down, as he probably would have if he'd have... Precisely. You, you, you don't want to end up with a reputation, a cartoon character uh, in King John. This is the problem. And King John was just interested in taxation and he was known as John Lackland because he didn't have his own lands. So he, 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 he was always, he was the spare, essentially. Uh, but he ended up inheriting on the death of uh, Richard Coeur de Leon, Richard I. But had we known more about Richard, I mean, people forget that in 1189, when Richard was crowned at Westminster Abbey, it was followed by a massive Jewish pogrom and the, the killing of Jews throughout England. He quarrelled with everyone that he went. He, he Because he rated himself and he went on the uh, 1189 Third Crusade, the, the Great Crusade, the Crusade of Kings, and he certainly fell out with the Austrian emperor, he fell out with the others, he fell out with the king of France. Uh, they all ended up leaving and he ended up staying. But he could never make it to Jerusalem. He went down the coast, he besieged Acre, uh, he slaughtered the garrison there because they failed to surrender. So Saladin, uh, the commander, the rival, executed his Christian prisoners. So th th there was this to and fro between Saladin and Richard, and, and, and that's another reason why he's entered folklore, because of this, this campaign out in the Holy Land. And it was the, really the high point of the crusading uh, era. And yet he doesn't really fulfil any of those um, three things we mentioned at the beginning gaining, holding and passing on your your title. He's off in a foreign country fighting. He's not doing anything to hold on to his power or security. But funnily enough, he, he did fight his father, Henry II. And th this was what we said at the beginning, that, that sometimes the children take their forces against their parents, against the, their father who's ruling. John and Richard absolutely did that against yeah. Henry the Second. Okay, mean, so they were in. A, they, they, they understood the first part of gaining it, but um, after that, it was like, right, now we can go off and do whatever our hobbies are. What we're interested. Yes, because he just wasn't interested. I think he was. He was interested. He. I mean, he rushed back from the Holy Land uh, to 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 try and retake England from his brother because he heard what was going on. And he was also worried that the barons either might side with John or would turn against uh, his dynasty. And that was one of the problems. The key problem he had in the Holy Land was having captured Jaffa on the coast. He then had to get inland to Jerusalem. And had he done that, he would have been very exposed to counterattack by Saladin's forces. You know, it's one of the key problems of being a crusader on the coast and moving inland. You're always going to be vulnerable. And this was what happened to, to every single crusader army that happened to go into the interior, whether it was the Battle of the Horns of Hattin, uh, whether it was Manzikert. You know, these were the crusader battles that the, the, the were always 
very destructive of Christian forces. Um, and so Richard learnt that and, and had to head home. That was the problem. And in the end, was killed in a minor incident. Uh, he heard there was some gold at uh, the, the small fort at Shalou and went to investigate, went to attack and was hit by a crossbow bolt. Yes, and there's quite a story involved in the man who shot him, who was forgiven uh, by Richard, wasn't he? And then after Richard died... The um, Richard's henchman basically flayed the guy alive. It, it, it often happens like yeah. that. <laughs> so you're not really forgiven. No. Well, another great favourite of yours, of course, is Edward I, the Hammer of the Scots. Yes, and Hammer of the Welsh as well, and, and, and the greatest uh, castle builder that this country has ever had. He, he built castles wherever he went, and you just have to go to castles like Conwy or uh, Carnarvon, uh, to, to see the kind of building programme that he introduced. He was an absolute fighter. He stood at six foot two. No wonder he was called Edward Longshanks. He was a very imposing martial figure, a bit like Canute. He, he just had that presence and he had that prowess on the battlefield. He had been on crusade as a prince in 1270 and there's the story of how he was attacked by an assassin and he actually ended up uh, fighting the assassin, grappling with him, forcing him to the ground and with the help of uh, two aides, killing, killing the man. And there's also a story that, that the dagger was poisoned and that uh, Edward's wife, Eleanor of Castile, sucked the poison out of his arms. <laughs> it's just one of those stories, one of those myths. But it, it, it added to the legend of Edward and the, the reputation he had for being fearless and, and for taking really no prisoners. Uh, he dealt with uh, David III of Wales pretty uh, directly and had him hanged, drawn and quartered in Shrewsbury. So that, that was the Welsh dealt with. Then followed up with building his castles so, and, and repeatedly going back into Scotland as well. He brought the Stone of Scone, didn't he? Yeah, the, 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 the Stone of Destiny, the Stone of Scone, back, to, back to England. And that was only recently returned to Scotland. So it was there under uh, Edward's uh, coronation Cor yeah. uh, chair, coronation throne, um, for all those centuries. It was absolutely extraordinary. But he, he wasn't averse to massacre. And, and uh, many people know about his massacre of the citizens of Berwick on Tweed. Uh, he, he is believed to have allowed his army to kill up to 15,000 people. I mean, he, he killed every single inhabitant of Berwick on Tweed to teach them a lesson, to show that he was not going to be messed about, that he was the, the ruler of the kingdom. And that other thing that um, some of these kings uh, were vexed by were the Jewish community and he took it out on them as well, didn't he? Yes, first of all, he he milked them of their money. He he put several hundred into the Tower of London. Some say sort of six or seven hundred were in the Tower of London. He had half of those executed. He then signed the Edict of Expulsion in 1290 because by that stage he had another income stream. He had the money lenders of Lombardy to lend him money. So he thought, right, I'll seize Jewish assets. And the Jews had only been brought over by William the Conqueror. They hadn't been in England a long time. But because they 
were very good in in terms of trade and money and banking. They they had been uh, very useful in the expansion of English trade and and once again it, it created jealousies and violence. And expulsion, Jamie, generally means not saying off you go to France, but chucking them overboard. Well, that's what happened in this case. It's believed that that, uh, many of them were simply drowned on on the way back across the channel. So that that was one of the, the, again, one of the hard-line approaches that Edward I took. And it it just shows that these pogroms against the Jews happened throughout history. And we'll talk about this in our podcast on Contagion that in 1349, again, the, the, the Jews were blamed throughout Europe um, for, for the plague, and they were accused of poisoning um, wells, of putting spells on people, of taking contagion around Europe. This was the Black Death. This was the Black Death, yeah. and, and so, so thousands were killed throughout Europe. But the Edict of Expulsion of 1290 just shows that there was still this sort of anti-Semitic thread going through um, the land um, for, for centuries. Right, so staying with the Edwards, um, the Hammer of the Scots, Edward I, and you have Edward II, and then the long-reigning Edward III. And this was the, the height of such things as chivalry. So it wasn't just martial prowess. It was the idea of tournaments, of chivalry, of, of courtly manners. It's no accident that the, the Knights of the Garter were founded uh, during this period. It's no accident that Chaucer came about during that time. You know, there was a flourishing, and there was a flourishing of the English language. You know, this was when French became less important, that the, the, the English language came to the fore. And you, you, you started seeing this in, in the beginning of, of Chaucer and writings and such things. And, and it was a period of, of people such as Petrarch, of course, sort of coming up with this humanist revolution down in the Italian provinces. You also got the Black Death, and that wiped out you know, about a third of the English population. But ironically, paradoxically, that led to the rise of the middle classes. You know, you started getting the merchant classes. You had opportunity being created. Because you had to pay the serfs because there weren't enough of them around just to till the fields in the old way. That's right. And, and, And it always seems to be that disease, that the killing off of population does create opportunity, just as you saw earlier on in the in the 6th century, the Justinian plague back then, you saw the beginnings, once you saw the, the Roman Empire being undermined and you started getting city-states and the power of the city-states and the power of the merchant classes, that's when you start started getting art flourishing and, and, and the rivalry that, that sometimes was healthy, sometimes was unhealthy. But, but back in, in merry old England, there, there was still room for military campaigns. And Edward III, just like Richard the Lionheart, was, was viewed as this great military leader. 
and we we talked about his son, the Black Prince, uh, at the Battle of Poitiers. We talked about him being at the Battle of Cressy, age 16, just as Richard the Lionheart led his first armies, age 16. This was this was not considered unusual. So royals in battle were were still key during this this period. So this was the time of, of chivalry, tournaments, jousting, melees, and so on, and and the great template of the knight, um, the bold knight, was um, William Marshall from a pre- the previous period. But Edward's veneer, really, isn't it, chivalry? It's the sort of veneer of brutality. Yes, it gave... It, it was a period of minstrels. <laughs> minstrels, ballads, poems... Uh, and a little bit of slaughter. And courtly behaviour and a bit of slaughter. It, it, you take something like the... Uh, the the battle of the thirty when he sent out his guys to take on uh, the French king over who would uh, control Brittany it was the house of Blois against the house of de Montfort I think it was thirteen fifty one and and because of the Black Death they they essentially didn't have the manpower to to kill off more men at arms and knights so they they just picked thirty from each side for this grand melee. And it still involved killing, and uh, there were more English knights killed than French knights. So, so the French won the day on that occasion. So, so Brittany ended up in French hands. So that is how things were often decided, you know. And and quite often armies were sent in order to uh, create a negotiation, to in order to 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 shape. The, the negotiating scene, but certainly it was a period of tournaments, and that period of tournaments and pageantry that that carried on well into the 16th century. And Henry VIII, for example, I mean that 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 was still important: the jousting and the heraldry. Well, and the he chivalry. almost it, it was the whole substance of it, was it? Because he didn't really have any great military victories himself. No, there was some some uh, some pretty dud events that went on rattling around in France a bit. But but again, pageant was all. And by the time you get to Henry Henry the Eighth and the propaganda of the field of the cloth and gold, you can see that these events in themselves had a political message just as strongly as as any battlefield success or or appearing at the head of an army. Right. Let's tackle those two Henrys, Henry the Fourth, and. Henry V. Great warriors. And Henry IV encapsulates all the things that we've talked about. He usurped uh, Richard II, um, probably had him starved to death. And so not only did he usurp things, he, he also had that link, but that, that sort of lesser link to Edward III, his grandfather through John of Gaunt, who was the father of uh, Henry IV. So he had come in as Henry Bolingbroke. He had overthrown, his house had overthrown um, the previous king. And this was really the beginning of the House of Lancaster. This was the Henry, the Henrys. Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI. And Henry IV was certainly a great warrior. And he, he had that sort of link back to the Crusades, although uh, the Crusaders had been pushed out of the Holy Land in 1291 when Acre fell. Here we are, a hundred years later, 
and Henry IV starts to go with Teutonic Knights, one of the three great military orders from the Crusader era. Uh, he starts going with Crusade on them to Lithuania to besiege uh, Vilnius. Uh, I mean, not hugely successful, but but it, again, it, it didn't do his reputation any harm at all. Uh, th- this was one of the ways that a king could triumph, that a king could stand out, continuing to go on these uh, quasi-religious missions. But he was almost a contract soldier then, was he? I mean, it wasn't his crusade against Vilnius as such. He wasn't in charge. No, there were these sort of contract kings came along to to help. and But but there was, as I said, this sort of quasi-religious dimension and, and Henry was trying to sort of have people uh, converted or at least baptised under, under uh, his direction. It was just another way of imposing his control, imposing his will. Yes, and burnishing his reputation, I suppose. But there were, again, there were rivals. Because he had overthrown the the, the sitting king, uh, he ended up having to fight nobles who didn't support him, and hence the Battle of Shrewsbury and and, uh, people like Harry Hotspur, the Percys of Northumberland, uh, rising against him, bringing armies against him. And and, uh, this... Descent from Edward III, this this lineage, this tension between the House of York and the the House of Lancaster, th- these were where the problems began. Henry V, the the, the son of Henry IV, uh, managed to keep a lid on it. He was hugely successful, highly popular. Well, um, also he died young before he could mess it up, didn't he? I mean, he's a sort of James Dean, JFK type. Precisely, figure, and and like Edward III. Had had these these great triumphs. I mean, Agincourt. There's no doubt about it. Is always considered one of the great triumphs of English history. It, it's one of those stepping stones, one of these waypoints, because it was a successful battle, and they tended to be against uh, sort of stiff odds. I mean, the, the 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 French armies were always greater, always larger. But in a way, even though they won uh, won the battle and they they got everything they wanted. Uh, then from a marriage uh, with Henry, Henry V getting married to Catherine de Valois. But he drops dead and the whole thing falls apart quite quickly because we are in England and France is in France and, you know, the French want to rule their own land. You mentioned Catherine de Valois and it's not a well-known name at all, Tom, but she played a critical part in English history because she started having a relationship with... Uh, a Welshman, a Welsh courtier known as Owen Tudor. And he ended up being the founder of the Tudor dynasty, uh, Henry VII, of course. But it's also the period that you start getting the the tensions that that arrived after the the death of Edward III. That comes down with these rival households, these rival um, dukedoms, these rival families. And the tensions explode into war. You, 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 you get the Wars of the Roses. And this is what happens. You get a weak king like Henry VI. You get his rival, Edward IV, both different houses. You get York against Lancaster. And bang. It's such medieval behaviour. It's, it's so bloody. So you get someone like Henry building the chapel at, at Eton, founding Eton College. 
and at the same time building the chapel at King's College, Cambridge. So there you have these sort of medieval kings building chapels. Meanwhile, out in places like Florence, you get Donatello making the bronze statue of David. So there's the start of the Renaissance out there. It takes a good deal longer to to filter through uh, to England and doesn't really come to England until Henry VIII. So so it's 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 really the next century that the Renaissance. Uh, comes to England and, and and so during the 15th century and certainly the sort of later part of the 15th century you 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 get the these terrible upheavals these these terrible battles this this terrible bloodshed and and again it's it's kings who can lead at the front kings who don't may make mistakes who 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 tend to dominate and poor old Henry VI having been a, a child when he inherited, he was never going to be a great uh, warrior and great military leader. He, he he just wanted to pray and and study. And do good works. Exactly. For and the do, times. Exactly. And he's he's much underrated. But but this was a period when when again it was it was survival of the fittest, a survival of the of the most warlike. You mentioned the Game of Thrones, but in fact, this really is a period of history that that uh, story uh, draws from, uh, the Wars of the Roses. And the last man standing, of course, is, is um, you know, the outsider Owen Tudor's offspring. Yes, so you end up with Henry VII. We mentioned marriage. Uh, this is when he, he ends up fusing the, the, the House of York with the House of Lancaster. And that's when you start getting stability. You know, that's when you get the Tudor dynasty. And it's really, I suppose, the end of kings routinely uh, appearing on the battlefield, lending, lending themselves to, to the battle. You know, all the way through history, you had the Henry Fives, you had the Edward I, you had uh, Crookback Dick, you know, Richard III, at the end of the Wars of the Roses, you know, being killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field. That was really the last time that kings routinely appeared on the battlefield. And and you move on into the Tudor period, you get someone like Henry VIII standing and watching as the, as the Mary Rose turns turtle. <laughs> but he certainly wasn't on board. You know, this is this is really the the, the great change. And Elizabeth, you know, well, appearing uh, in armour. Yes, she uh, appeared in armour to make her great speech at Tilbury, but she was not at the in, in the vanguard of her army. No. Um, but if she, they'd have lost, she would have been killed. Uh, so com- her life com- was com- com- completely, in completely, and she was certainly, you know, guarded at St. James's Palace during the Spanish Armada. I mean, they were terrified of assassination. They were terrified of uh, armies landing and, and, and moving uh, moving against her. Uh, but she she certainly was not playing the part of Boadicea. She was not going to, 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 to lead her forces into battle. Um, and that was not expected of, 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 a, of a queen, frankly. It's good to hear the word Boadicea. Well, in all Boudicca. <laughs> now you've ruined it. <laughs> okay. The early modern period for Britain is really centred around the Civil War, Oliver Cromwell and the beheading of Charles I. Yes, and the, the Stuarts really weren't great in battle, to be honest. They, they should never have 
appeared anywhere near the battlefield. And, and Charles I is a great example of that. Uh, he, he, and he was untrustworthy. Every time he signed a peace accord, every time he said he'd do something, he, he, he then would renege. He was extremely shifty. And I'm not surprised that Cromwell and others wanted him beheaded in the end because they were fed up with his uh, constant uh, escape attempts. I, I think he escaped from Oxford dressed just as a servant at one stage, but it's not as bad as his son, who later became James II, who escaped England dressed as a girl. So, <laughs> Also that uh, point mentioned right at the beginning, um, even when Parliament is trying to assert itself, is asserting itself, he really couldn't get it through his head that um, as king he, he didn't have divine right. He believed in his own divine right to rule. That's right. I always think of his trial when he 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 walloped his interrogator with his his cane and the head fell off, and he just sat there expecting someone to pick it up, and no one did. So he ended up having to pick it up. So it, it, it was just the mindset. It, it was the most extraordinary mindset, and the, it, it was that combination of stupidity and arrogance, which was always a problem with the Stuarts. Uh, Plus the divine right of kings, but the, but they were not a warrior breed. You know that that had died out. That that sort of medieval notion, both of chivalry and martial prowess, that that had, that had definitely gone. Um, in about the in the middle of the civil war, we had the Battle of Edge Hill, and um, the king employed Prince Rupert as his commander of cavalry. The problem with Rupert was that he was a Rupert. He was a tough, and he liked charging with his cavalry. But there was no discipline, and it was Oliver Cromwell. You, if you want to see his sort of rival on the on in cavalry terms, who who sort of trained his men so well, you know, just had trained them not to go after the baggage train, not to roar into the enemy, go through the other side and end up several miles from what was going on at the front. It, it was Oliver Cromwell who developed the idea of the, of the double attack, that you, you cut through the enemy and then turned very quickly to attack them from the rear. Prince Rupert never, ever developed that tactic. And, but it is worth mentioning that he was the son of Princess Elizabeth, who was the daughter of James I, and she was the young princess who, as a girl, was at Coombe Abbey, that the gunpowder plotters wanted to kidnap and put her on the throne as a Catholic queen, uh, marry her off to a Catholic. So, so these threads of history, whether it's plot and subterfuge or the battlefield, they, they, they have a long, they cast a long shadow. Yeah, and even though he failed at the, uh, in the Civil War and ultimately was disgraced for that period he reappears later on once um once the restoration has taken place and he becomes a successful naval commander against the dutch so yes. he gets his job back or a new job anyway well indeed and james ii of course became head of the, the uh, head of the navy before before he he became king yeah so and, and it, he was probably older and wiser by then and you know he'd he had a lot of experience and perhaps he'd calmed down well, it was it was youthful enthusiasm, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about royals who don't do so well on the battlefield. And a lot of them were young, and a lot of them were untrained, and a lot of them got their jobs uh, because they happened to be royal. And a terrific sense of entitlement. 
I know what I'm doing because I'm royal rather than I've been trained. And, and, and no one can say no to them. That's the yeah. problem. Yeah. Everyone's terrified. Everyone wants to keep them, keep them safe. But they, they, they simply ignore uh, those things. I mean, so Was that why Sharp shot uh, Slender Billy at the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Yes, indeed. And and uh, Slender Billy was was wounded in the shoulder, but but he he's a typical example of of, of someone who should have been nowhere near the battlefield. But we'll uh, we'll get on to him. Uh, the, the, those minor royals who have bit parts in battles later later on, but. It takes us on. You go from the Civil War, and and, and Charles II obviously served on the battlefield and uh, once more proved himself. He was brave, but he he didn't lead armies uh, too often. I mean, that uh, Battle of Worcester in 1651 was really the, the, the high point of his career on the battlefield and and we've talked about how he was uh, knocked from his horse twice and escaped and that was the great uh, hiding hiding in the oak tree moment but he, he returned and by that stage i think the idea of a professional army you know because you had very good battlefield commanders uh, during the Civil War, certainly on the parliamentary side, who then switched sides, you know that that idea of professionalism came to the fore, and again, uh, there was less need to have a royal on the battlefield. You come into the era of the the the, the sort of Dukes of Marlborough, you know, and you have the Duke of Wellington, you know, someone who I think was involved, you know, in thirty-two battles, commanded in thirty-two battles, and won every single one. You know, once you get a professional soldier like that and you have very technical battles, you don't want a royal to be in command. You really don't. No, and I mean, it, it even applies in the modern time. You get someone like Anthony Eden, who fought bravely in the First World War. Now, he's not a royal, but he was um, high up in government in the Second World War. And the, the professional generals running the war often had difficulties with politicians who had a little bit of military experience, but really only knew what it was like to be a captain leading a platoon or a company. Well, I mean, Churchill wasn't averse to meddling. <laughs> no, he definitely thought he could do all. <laughs> that's for sure. But he was a great motivator. And, and I think that that's what... And what... also, he ultimately always deferred to the high command, didn't he? he in he, in he, terms he, of operations. He did. Even after the English Civil War, even after the Restoration, you, you do get some military aspects coming in. I mean, w with William and Mary, you had William the uh, Third, and he he was very good on the battlefield. He, he was led, a professional soldier. He was a professional soldier. Yeah. He loved being in the army, and that's really what he wanted to do. So, so, but he 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 would still defer. I mean, the, you know, you had the Duke of Marlborough, and. So you got this professional army, you got professional generalship, and you started getting that divide between the, the royals and the generals. So you had William III, a great battlefield commander. He wasn't really called upon uh, during his reign with Mary to, to do much on the battlefield, but but. Battle of the Boyne? How about that? Yeah, the Battle of the Boyne. But that was really the succession. That was the clincher. Uh, you know, yeah. That was the end of James II. And, and that was him coming to power. But during his reign, mm. it wasn't really called upon. Then, of course, you get Queen Anne. And she wasn't going to lead an army. 
And you got the professionalization. John you got, Churchill. You got John Churchill. You got the Duke of Marlborough and, mm. and his battlefield wins. And I think after that, it, it was really the end of having uh, monarchs in, in charge of armies. It, it became so technical. Uh, and, and the armies were huge. You, you needed more than just kingship. To, to, to lead armies. You needed more than just a man in armour <laughs> leading with his, with his sword drawn. And back to the uh, original premise of this episode, uh, William and Mary, a joint um, reign. It's the marriage. It's the marriage of a man who can take power, keep power because he's a warrior, and a woman who has the right to it because of her Stuart heritage. So but perhaps by this stage, two of our original premises have been discarded. I mean, the murder aspect is less important and the martial aspect is, is less important. You know, so marriage is the one that's left, I suppose. And, um, you know, you get to, to, to the Georges. They sort of achieve power really by default and and we mentioned earlier because they were Protestant and that helped. And these tiny... German principalities. It's it's quite bizarre that they should have played such a role in in the the life of the British monarchy uh, after uh, the the death of William the Third. I mean, it, it's it's you know someone once mentioned that that the royal family essentially beat farmers from Verdun, and it might be a joke, but but there is a truth in it. There's something rather down to earth and provincial about that bloodline that comes into the royal family. Yeah, George III was Farmer George, wasn't he? Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and they were all married off. They were all married off, again, to, to, to minor principalities, to minor German states, whether it was Tech or uh, Brunswick or uh, Saxe-Coburg. They, mm. they're, 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 tiny, they're tiny principalities. But, but this is what fed in to um, the, 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 the royal family. And we, we mentioned George II being the, the, the last to, to actually lead troops on the battlefield. And, and that really drew a line. That was the, the final hurrah for kings being present at the battle. Even though, of course, George IV um, believed, as we said, uh, that he had actually been at Waterloo. In fact, when the news came, when it was reported to him that, uh, that Wellington had won the Battle of Waterloo, he, he fainted, uh, had to be brought round with smelling salts. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. He, get, he did a good job buying all those pictures back. He certainly did. Uh, I, I, and, all and that he, cheap furniture. He, he, set a, he set a cultural trend. Jimmy, we were nearing the end, and what we're seeing is that our our monarchs, our emperors, our pharaohs have become effectively the chairman of the board, wheeled out to cut the ribbon, um, but ultimately they have to hand all the power to the chief executive, which is the government of the day. And their professional generals on the battlefield. But it doesn't stop the, the sort of minor royals and other royals taking taking a role in battle. I mean, we, we talked about Prince Rupert during the English Civil War, but, but you come on to the 19th century and you do get some extraordinarily inept young men 
on the battlefield with with royal connections and you could start with we we mentioned him but but it's worth mentioning again and that is slender billy uh, william of orange who was given uh, a role at waterloo and was utterly useless and and wellington wanted to sideline him and certainly diminished his responsibilities on the battlefield but everything he touched uh, turned to dust and he ended up uh, being responsible for the slaughter of, of several battalions because he on on a lot of occasions during the battle of waterloo he he had his men in columns rather than squares and and got it wrong every single time and every single time those columns were attacked by french cavalry and massacred and that was slender billy for you Slender Billy, yeah. What about Louis Napoleon, the son of Napoleon III, who, from his photograph, looks like he's a very confident young man, but he came to a, a sticky well, end. He did. Uh, uh, just like Slender Billy, he was elevated beyond his pay grade. He, his father, strangely enough, was the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte and had completely cocked up. Uh, at uh, the Battle of Sedan. That was really the, 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 the Franco-Prussian War. It led to the siege of Paris and the fall of Paris. And uh, Napoleon III was responsible for that. He had none of the prowess of Napoleon Bonaparte, that's for sure. His son was Louis Napoleon, and he was petitioning, desperate to get out and see some military action. The Bonapartists didn't like this because, you know, they saw this young man, this this uh, member of the House of Bonaparte, uh, wanting to serve with the British Army, and that was an absolute no-no. But he particularly petitioned Queen Victoria, who said, oh, why not, but keep him safe. And there was this attempt to, to somehow keep him out of harm's way, partly because they thought he'd be rash and reckless and partly because they, they didn't want this sort of uh, line in the Bonaparte uh, family to, to suddenly be cut off. But So he went to Zululand with the British Army. He was with the Royal Engineers because they thought he'll be kept out of harm's way, he won't be in, in action at the front. But he insisted on leading a, a, a troop of men on horses uh, near the kraal of Alundi, the royal uh, Zulu kraal, and was attacked. And he was stabbed with assegais in the thigh and the eye. I think he was. there were 18 assegai thrusts to him. I mean, he, he was completely butchered. And that was where arrogance led him. Uh, it didn't mean that he wasn't brave, but it just Yeah, meant... I mean, this commander, um, Viscount Wolsey, said he was a plucky young man and he died a soldier's death. What on earth could he have done better? So, but it's perhaps it's what it, what he wanted. Um, but but he's a sort of barely a footnote in history, frankly. <laughs> but but it is this thing of of being elevated beyond where you should have been, and I think that uh, maybe it was part of his family heritage that he thought I could be the next Napoleon I can be the next great military commander and win praise and uh, adulation back, back home but it was not to be but but that's what can ha happen 
and you know once again it's it's it makes sense for this division between not only the commander of of the armed forces not being a royal but also to be a bit cautious about allowing minor royals into the front line as well royals in war well before we end i think we should have a fast postscript well the postscript i wanted to bring in was was really queen elizabeth the queen mother because during the war uh, as you know she was the, the mother of two princesses elizabeth and margaret and she decided with her husband george the sixth to stay in england not go to Canada, as many were were calling her to do. And so she stayed some of the time in Windsor, some of the time in uh, Buckingham Palace. But one of the things she did do, uh, talking about royals in war, is that she uh, took pistol practice. And it's said that she used to hunt vermin with a pistol uh, to increase her, 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 her marksmanship skills. And she had every intention of taking out uh, as many German Fallschirmjäger parachutists as, as she could were they to make a raid on Buckingham Palace. So uh, that, again, is, is, is a royal in war and someone who is uh, incredibly brave and who acted as a figurehead uh, throughout war. And, and once again, it, it's not always what you do on the battlefield. It, it's, it's just your presence in the midst of war and what you symbolise during those hard times. Excellent. My aunt, in fact, um, had a similar encounter in Cornwall with with her pistol that she had and had been told to repel invaders. She wasn't really up for it, but when the Americans came to requisition her house in their strange helmets, they were met by her in the drive, waving her Webley, 45. Um, but anyway, after that, they got on extremely well. And if you go to that house today, you can still see on some of the doors... Uh, the stenciled uh, writing of the sergeant's mess. And those soldiers, American soldiers, were some of the first ashore on D-Day. Jamie, thank you. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History with Tom Ashton and James Jackson. You can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. And remember to share this podcast with a friend. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.